Why do you let evil people run wild? What kind of friend gives his friend that question and leaves for two weeks? He's like, go for it, buddy. <laughs> so you know how at the end when we put up the, 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 the email, and you know, if Todd says, if you have any questions. So if you disagree with me, feel free to email Todd. And if you don't, then I'll give you my email after and you can, you can uh, email me. But I, I'm, I'm joking. I, I'm really excited to preach on this, to share with you my thoughts um, on it. And, um, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about it. And it may seem like this is a pretty daunting question, and it is. There's no question about it. Um, the psalm that Jen read off the top, um, we don't know who wrote that psalm. Um, but some scholars believe that it was written around 500 BC. So people have been asking this question for a long, long, long time. And so we're in good company when we ask this question and we might shy away from it. That might be part of our plan is just say, let's ignore it altogether. Um, but we can't for a number of reasons. One, because Jesus is our hope. And if we have anything to offer this world, we need to at least take a stab at this. And number two, because as we see evil in the world, it needs to do something to us. It needs to, to challenge us as followers of Jesus. So take heart, we're in good company and, and we're gonna dive into this together. So let's just pray for a second. Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us as we look at this really difficult question. Lord, would you give us insight? Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? And would you give us wisdom and knowledge and even more than that, comfort beyond our understanding? In Jesus' name, amen. Tanya Talaga, in her book, Seven Fallen Feathers, um, which is a book about the death of seven uh, indigenous high school students in Thunder Bay. You should read it if you haven't. It's, it's horrific, but it's important for us to read. She describes a story that she reported on when she was a uh, Toronto Star reporter. Um, on January the 29th in 2017, Barbara Kentner, 34-year-old indigenous woman, was walking with her sister to go get some milk from the store. She left her 16-year-old daughter at home, and as she walked down the street, a car passed her and threw a trailer hitch, big metal trailer hitch with a ball at her, and yelled, I got one, as it hit Barbara in the stomach. And it destroyed her internal organs. Over the next five months, she waited in a hospital room, um, hoping, her family hoping that she would get better, and ultimately she didn't, she died. Why, oh Lord, do you let evil people run wild? Two weeks ago, we were finishing our camping trip um, up at Arrowhead Provincial Park, we had a great time. It's Thursday, we were just starting to pack up, and all of a sudden, all of our phones started buzzing. And um, I guess we kinda, you know, we're kinda on the edge of a cell, and then all of a sudden, kinda just flood of, messages and texts and stuff. And a dear, dear friend that we partnered with, lived right next to, um, partnered not only in business down in Niagara-on-the-Lake, but also in ministry. Um, had a little prayer room over our community uh, store in, in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Just incredibly great, incredible, dear, dear people. She was driving down 55, and a man who was driving far too fast and recklessly 
pulled out and hit her head on uh, and killed her instantly. She leaves grandchildren, she leaves a husband and three sons. Why, oh Lord, do you let evil people run wild? It strikes me that there are two ways that we ask this question of God. The first way is pastorally. What, what, do, what do I say to my friend? What do we say to the death of Barbara Kentner? What is, what is the Christian's answer to that? We gotta have an answer, friends. And so there's a pastoral way that we ask this question, and we ask it in the pain of kind of this individual injustice and evil perpetrated in specific ways. Why, why did you let this happen, Lord? Why did you let this evil person do this? Part of our goal is, in this series is to seek to answer that and to seek to answer it also for those people, maybe those of us here or watching at home, who have been grappling with that as they come to Jesus. And they, perhaps, I've known lots of people in my life and ministry who've said, I just can't come to Jesus because I don't know why he lets evil people do this. And that's my barrier. And so we wanna, we wanna provide decent answers to that. And so the first way we're gonna do this is, is to say, how does this question keep us from Jesus in, and look at it in that personal pastoral way? I wanna suggest to us that in the beginning, that first, well, this part's not a suggestion, this part's true. In the beginning, the first sin that we have is this desire for knowledge, right? What does the serpent say to Eve? If you eat this apple, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So you will know. And there's something that's never left us, I wanna suggest, this part I'm suggesting, there's something that hasn't left us that we want to know. We have to have an, an answer. Why did this happen, God? We wanna know. And sometimes the church is kind of in their desire to know, has kind of provided all sorts of answers and, and, and theological platitudes to this question that really fall pretty dead in the face of a husband mourning his wife being killed in a car accident on her way home. There's not really a whole lot of G.K. Chesterton or, you know, C.S. Lewis that's gonna really help you when you are in that place. So the first way that we wanna answer this question is to look at how Jesus responded to these situations. Look at Jesus in John 11. You know the story. It's a pretty famous story. Lazarus, his friend, is dead. And the cry to Jesus from his sister was, God, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And so Jesus shows up, and by now Lazarus is in the tomb. He's, he, he is dead, dead. He's in the tomb, embalmed. And this is the scripture that we read in verse 32 to 35 of John 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now Jesus had an answer. Jesus was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. In fact, later on, he even provides an answer. He says, this has happened so that I might glorify God, so you could see it. But right now, in this moment, 
all Jesus does is weep. Guys, we don't know how long between the Jesus wept and the open the stone, unwrap him, bring him out. We don't know how long that is. That's one of the real tragedies of the biblical text is that lots of times we're not sure how long that is. In my mind, I like to imagine Jesus sitting down with Martha and just holding her. They're weeping. He's weeping. He's just holding her. This is evil. He'll provide an answer later, but right now he's just weeping. Guys, stories like the ones I've just told you and stories like Lazarus should break our hearts. It should. It must. So we don't just say, oh, don't worry about it. God's, God's, he's dealt with evil. It's all over. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father and there's no more evil in the world. This is just temporal. Don't worry about it. That's not our role. Our role as as ministers of reconciliation is to sit and to weep. Our pastoral response to this question must first be empathy. It must be. To climb down into that pit of despair, the anger and frustration that people are in, and sit with them and weep. Not knowing sometimes is okay. It's okay for us as Christians to say to my friend, I I don't know why this happened. I don't know why, but I'm gonna weep with you. I'm gonna hold you just like Jesus did. Look at the psalmist even kind of cries out for this. Look at Psalm 94, the one that we read off the top, carries on in verse 17 to 19, and it says, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Guys, this isn't an explanation. The part that Jen read at the beginning, this is a, he's he's crying out, how long, O Lord, are these evil people gonna do this? I want vengeance. This, verse 17, isn't like a, oh, well, good, I get it now. This is just in the midst of the psalm. Oh, God, you console me. You comfort me doesn't make sense. In the 1990s, we used to sing a song. Todd and I actually were part of a a group of guys who um, would meet on Friday morning at some stupid early hour in the morning and pray together and talk together and eat breakfast. It was an excuse to eat breakfast, mostly. And, um, And one of the songs that we used to sing was a really, I think probably someone made it up there, but it just went, I don't understand, but I worship. I don't understand, but I love you. Sometimes in the face of this question, that is our response, to just weep with Jesus. Now, the second kind of story that causes us to ask this question is a story like Curtis LeMay. This is more of a philosophical type of response, and and it's good to have thoughts on this. I think this is important. Um, I'm gonna just, a slight digression here. I love all things British. I'm first generation Canadian. My dad grew up in Wales. And so, kind of in my mind, I, you know, would like to be somewhere in Oxford in, you know, with rain and fog enveloping me with a pipe as we talk about why God would allow evil in the world. I think that seems appropriate. I think I might even have smarter answers there. Like, I just think a pint on the table and, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien to help me out and I'd be, I'd be a genius. So, we're not going to get through all of that (laughs) in 35 minutes. 
right? But we're going to have some answers. We do, we do want to respond. We want to first respond empathetically. We want it to break our hearts and to weep because that is appropriate to not necessarily know. But we also are Christians and we have a hope that just overwhelms. We were just singing about it. In the face of things we don't understand, we have some sort of hope and it's nuts. But we have it, and so we want to share it, and we want to think about these things. So the second kind of way that we ask this question is a more philosophical question, and it, and it kind of deals with a story like this one. Any revisionist history fans out? Yes. So Malcolm Gladwell um, is an author, one of my favorite authors. I'm a high school English teacher, um, among other things, and I love, I, I mostly kind of teach, my, uh, teach grade 12s English. And so I love, I give them lots of Malcolm Gladwell books, and they don't always... Uh, you know, agree with him. We don't as a class, but I love the way that he kind of turns things on their head and gets you to look at them differently. The, 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 the kind of tagline for his podcast is even something like, um, uh, my podcast on things overlooked or misunderstood or something, something to that effect. And so he's trying to take a different uh, perspective on things and uncover things. So here's the story of Curtis LeMay. On the night of March the 9th, 1945, 334 B-29s were sent from the Marianas, the three islands in the Pacific, to bomb Tokyo. Their target was Zone 1. It wasn't a military installation. It was not a, a munitions factory. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a very densely populated area of Tokyo. 1,665 tons of napalm was dropped on Tokyo in one night. One six hour period. Gladwell reports that the US Strategic Bombing Survey concluded the following, this is a direct quote from them. Probably more persons lost their lives by fire in a six hour period than any time in human history. More than 100,000 people lost their lives in that six-hour time period. Over the time of the bombing campaign in Tokyo, historians estimate that 500,000 civilians lost their lives in the napalm bombing of Tokyo. And this was the good guy. Curtis LeMay is an American general. So this is a philosophical question. This is the question to Hitler, Paul Potts, King Leopold in the Belgian Congo. This is, we have to ask this question because, Lord, why, why do you let evil people run wild? Now, we have to earth this question the, the way that we answered it first. We have to start there because it's a temptation when you answer this thing philosophically to just treat all of those people as one big group, 100,000, 500,000, 6 million Jews, 3 million um, uh, others in the, in the Holocaust. But they're all people. They're all Barbara Kentner. They're, they all have a 16-year-old daughter. They all leave a sister. So we have to earth it in that first. We must, as followers of Jesus, earth it in that first. But we also, like I said, want to answer this philosophically. So how can God let these evil people perpetrate such evil? Essentially, here's the stumbling block, isn't it? What we are asking underneath the question is, God, are you just? Am I more just than you? Do I see Curtis LeMay and Hitler and Paul Potts and do I say, well, what God should have done? 
is this. Are you just God? It's a good question. So we're going to answer this in three kind of ways. And we're going to look at it from Psalm 94. So I'm going I'm to read the whole thing to you. Okay? We've got time. It's okay. So Psalm 94 says this. You can follow along if you'd like. I think Ryan's probably got it. You got it, Ryan? Yes. Nice. O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Can I just, just digress for one second? Because what's going on in the world today, particularly in the area of civil rights, this, this is the question that's being asked right now. We, people think that they are not seen. And the more that we uncover those layers, we need to see and we need to weep first. And then we maybe need to do something. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of men, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who's f who fame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. The first philosophical position that gives us some sort of confidence to answer this is actually contained right in the question itself because the question itself is evidence of a moral imperative. If I say, why, O oh Lord, do evil people prosper? I am identifying something as evil and that something comes from somewhere. C.S. Lewis calls it uh, the law of nature. It comes from somewhere. When I tell you the story of Curtis LeMay, we recognize that as evil. Now, we may argue about whether it was the lesser of two evils, as military historians will do, and say, well, ultimately it, it, it saved civilian lives by ending the war earlier. But what we precisely do not do is say, oh, killing 100,000 people in six hours by firebombing them to death, that's okay. We don't do that. Right away, something rises up with us and we say, that's evil. Well, that's a moral imperative. Now, there's a, a, a whole lot of steps between a moral imperative and God. Read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He'll walk you through them all, okay? Or sit with me in a pub sometime with, you know, rain and a pipe and 
Well, I guess we're not allowed to do that anymore, but you know, we'll talk it through. But essentially asking that question is illustration that somehow in our hearts, in who we are as people, as humanity, there is a sense of this. I, I don't think anyone that I have ever met would say, oh no, killing 100,000 people in one night with firebombs, yeah, that's okay. I mean, nice work. Like, that's impressive. Like, think of the technology involved in doing that. That is really impressive. Well done. No one's, no one's ever going to say that. It doesn't matter whether they believe in Jesus or not. They're not. Because somewhere in them, they have decided that's evil. This isn't, that is. This person is, this, this person isn't. Right? You're not going to find a person who says Hitler was a really, really good guy. Like, motivated from real positive things. Just not. So right in the question is part of our answer philosophically, okay? Is that there is a God. He is. So if there is this person, then the answer to our question at least at some level can be, okay, Lord, help us out here. Which is what the psalmist is doing. He's saying there, there is a God. I know, I can feel it inside of me, I, I, I can see right and wrong, this evil, this law of nature, whatever we want to call it, and so I have to appeal to you. God, when are you going to do that? So the first answer is that there is a God, God is. Now the really interesting part about this is that the, the, the psalmist actually calls that to our minds by referencing the law, which kind of stands in as a metaphor for evil or not evil, right? The law is kind of this delineation for us. And when I was thinking about this, I just, it was a, it was an, a total afterthought. But the Lord probably reminded me of Matthew 5. And what does it say in Matthew 5? The fulfillment of the law is what? Jesus. I have come not to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill the law. So if the law is this stand-in for the fact that there is a moral imperative, that there is a law of nature, that there is a God, the fulfillment of that is in Jesus. So our only hope to this question is to find out where Jesus is and hang out with him. And it turns out often he's weeping. Often he's right with Mary and Martha. And he is the fulfillment of that. So that's our first kind of philosophical element of our answer. We can trust him. He is the embodiment of justice. And this leads us to the second way that we understand and grapple with the question. Not only do we believe that God is, but we believe that God will act. We believe that God will act. The only issue for us as Christians is a question of timing. That's all it is. It's not if he will or if he won't. It's just a question of when will he. And it gets even more a little existential than that because with God out of time, he already has. He already is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is true. All things are under his feet right now. He's out of this moment. And so we can be excited and we can hold on to that fact. But it gets a little tough, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know how to respond to all the evil that I see around me. I don't know what to say to my friend. I don't know what to say about Barbara Kentner. I don't know what to say about Curtis LeMay or Hitler. And so it gets a little bit disheartening and we can lose heart. 
Think about Hebrews. Todd actually read this last week, and it's really important. It ties in to what we're thinking about right now, because we have to have faith that God will act, right? Faith is being confident of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Who's certain of what they do not see? Crazy people. Have you ever come across someone walking on the street, someone perhaps who's struggling with a mental illness and they're talking to someone as if there is someone there and there isn't someone there? What do you do? I I hope I'm learning, my wife is teaching me, she's a social worker, I'm learning how to try and engage that space. But I gotta be honest with you, most of me is scared, nervous, wants to run the other way, thinks these, it it seems insane. I, I, I don't even know how to engage it. That's what I'm supposed to be like. That's exactly what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to believe in something that we cannot see. That is hope. In fact, by its very nature, that's hope. I have a truck. I don't hope for a truck, because I have one. You only hope for what you don't have. That's the way hope works. If you're hoping for something you've got, you got it all mixed up, right? That is who we are called to be. But it can be pretty hard. So we've got a few little bullet points here for us as we end that will help us because we need some, we need some help, don't we, to carry through this. How can we maintain this hope? So here, let's get really practical. Number one, we can maintain this hope by recognizing that we're not alone. We started by talking about the psalmist being, you know, somewhere around 500, 588 BC. We can think about David asking this question. We can think about Habakkuk asking this question. We can think about Job asking this question. We can think about probably people in your life asking this question. And certainly many, many heroes of the faith throughout the centuries asking this question, how long, O Lord, will you let evil run wild? So at least we're in good company. If Job can ask this question, if David, a man after God's own heart, can ask this question, then if I ask this question, it's okay. It's okay. So I can kind of keep faith and hope by recognizing I'm with a whole group of people who are asking this question as well. Number two, God has acted before. He has stepped into time. He has acted both in the past and hopefully you have experienced him act in your life or in the lives of people that you know, but he certainly has acted throughout history. He's stepped into time. He's outside of it. I don't get that totally. I don't understand how evil can be totally destroyed and him be in control of it all and yet these stories still exist. I don't understand that, but I do know that he has acted before and I've experienced him acting. And I want to get around people who've experienced him acting because that's going to help me have hope, have faith. Number three, we wait together. We wait together. It's hard hoping on your own. It's really hard hoping on your own, isn't it? It's really hard hoping on your own. And so we hope together. One of the hardest things about this moment in time is that we're doing this like this and not together. Right? And, and, I, and I think we need to find new ways. And you guys are, as Grace, I know you are, and we are, about learning how to be together because it's really hard to hope when you're not together. So a third way that we can hope and keep faith is to do it together. And number four, remember it's all about timing. It isn't a question of if, it's a question of when. 
I don't know why God tarries. Paul suggests in, in, in one of his letters that he waits because he wants all to come to a knowledge of him. So maybe that's why he tarries. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll find Curtis LeMay in heaven with us. I'm not sure, right? It reminds me of, if, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it reminds me of that moment in the first, uh, what is the first movie, also the first book, where um, Frodo sees Gollum following them through the mines of Moria. Remember that part? And Frodo says to Gandalf, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum, the evil creature, when he had the chance. And listen to Gandalf's response. Pity. It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? I think he's asking that of us, too. Can you do that? It's almost like God when he responds to Job, right? Hold on, whoa, who is this that darkens my counsel? Where were you when I drew the line of the ocean, right? So it's almost like he's saying, can you give them that life? Can you be more just than I? So maybe do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. That's Gandalf's response to Bilbo, and I think certainly it's a good encouragement to us as we wait for God's timing. So this quote then leads us to the last thought that helps us deal with this question. And indeed, we've been singing about it all the last three songs. Actually, every song tonight has just been this message over and over and over. The only truly wise and just one is Jesus, not us. Our faith is in a God of justice. And faith must lead us to trust him, not because of what he allows, but because of who he is. You get that? I'm gonna say that again, because that is so important. Our faith leads us to trust him, not because of what he allows or doesn't allow, but because of who he is. We see this evidenced in the lives of our kids when they're little, don't they? They trust us as mom and dad, even in the face of all sorts of terrifying things. In fact, it's one of the really horrible and sad elements of um, children who are abused is that they still trust their parents who are sometimes abusing them. That, 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 it, we trust him because of who he is, not because of what he allows. Trust is that way, isn't it? It's like hope, it's in the very nature of trust. You don't say, I trust you, God, for these things. You say, I trust you. In fact, I've often thought that I trust you has to have a period after it. Do you know that? Like, think that through. I trust you has to have a period there. If you add anything else to that sentence, it's not trust. It has to have a period at the end of that sentence. I trust you. So we trust him because he is the God of justice. That is who he is. Look at how Psalm 94 expresses this character of God. Understand, O dullest of people. He's not being very nice, is he? Fools, when will you be wise? Sometimes he slaps us upside the head. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are a breath. This is very similar to how God responds to Job, isn't it? Very, very similar. I'm God. Actually, Josh said it off the top, didn't he? I am God, not you. 
I am God. So we trust in who he is. Our hope then in the face of evil people is to join our hearts together, to lament together when evil befalls us, to weep as Jesus did, and to trust the promise that is Isaiah 65. Ben, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you to come up here as I read this. Here's how we end. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things, Curtis LeMay, Barbara Kentner, my friend in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Hitler, Paul Potts, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen.